1: Today, on Something You Should Know, why you might want to open your car door with the other hand. Then, amazing stories of important firsts. Who discovered fire? Who drank the first beer? And who's the first person whose name we actually know?
2: The first person whose name we know lived in Mesopotamia almost 5,000 years ago. And he wasn't a king or a, uh, a prince or a warlord. He was actually a, uh, an accountant. He was an accountant for a brewery, and his name was Kushim.
1: Then, how a person's hands can tell you how sincere they are. And how to get a job quickly by understanding it's not about going
0: out there and selling yourself. I wish that piece of advice, that concept of sell yourself, I wish it would die in a fire, frankly. It causes so much pain because if we sense a sales pitch, our guards go up. But success in the modern job search means having the ability to bring people's guards down. All this today on Something You Should Know.
1: something you should know fascinating intel the world's top experts and practical advice you can use in your life today something you should know with mike carruthers hi welcome to something you should know now that people are starting to go out more a lot of people are riding their bikes at least where i live i see a lot more people riding bikes because i suspect it's something to do And if you've ever ridden a bike in traffic, you've probably been pretty careful about watching the cars parked along the side of the road for fear that somebody might open the car door just as you drive by and crash. Well, there's actually a name for this. It's called dooring. And it happens more than you might think. A report from a few years ago said one dooring accident happens every day in the city of Chicago alone and I suspect there are a lot of near-miss dooring accidents all the time. But there is a solution. Next time you open your car door, assuming you're the driver, try using your right hand instead of your left. It's called the Dutch Reach. This simple motion causes you to pivot your entire body as you reach, first drawing your line of sight past your rearview mirror and then out to the street behind you. If you're on the passenger side, you use your left hand instead of your right. The trick is to just use the hand furthest from the door to ensure that upper body pivot. What's interesting is that this tip comes from the Netherlands, where people are taught to open a car door this way. The result is, doing this doesn't even have a name in the Netherlands. It's just how people open the door, and there are far fewer dooring incidents as a result. And that is something you should know. I bet you've wondered things like, who discovered fire, or who invented the wheel, or who drank the first beer? Those kind of big firsts are curious and obviously impossible to know. Or are they? Some of those big firsts we actually do know something about. Or more specifically, Cody Cassidy knows something about. Cody is a writer who has investigated what would seem to be impossible, and his latest book is called Who Ate the First Oyster? Hi, Cody. Hey, thanks for having me. So uncovering all these firsts seems like fun, a bit of a daunting task, but what made you decide to look into this?
2: I wanted to write about something that that couldn't be looked up on Wikipedia, and and a lot of the evidence of their inventions has decayed, and and that really brings in this interesting concept of piecing together different science and uh, different archaeology and genetics to try to figure out who they were and and what they looked like and how they did it and and what the effects were.
1: Yeah, well, I would wonder, and you you have in the book uh, you know, who who discovered fire, and I would think, well, come on, how could you really figure that out? I mean, that's got to go way, way back, and it May have been more than one person. So, who who discovered fire?
2: The first person to control fire is—it's remarkable. We we do actually have an answer for this question because fire has such a dramatic effect on food. For one, it breaks it down, so we get nearly double the calories from a cooked meal than we do from a raw one. And this has had a dramatic effect on um, how we've looked. We 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 grew more than a foot. The average. Uh, so archaeologists can see this dramatic change in our skeletons. And they've uh, been able to pinpoint then when, when the first fire was, when fire was first controlled, when the first person sparked one. And I, and I call this person, uh, I give these people names in the book. I called her uh, Martine, and uh, she lived about 1.9 million years ago and was probably chipping rocks to, to make sharp cutting tools. But uh, a lot of people think if you just chip two rocks together, you'll eventually spark a fire, but that's not true. You need a particular kind of rock called a pyrite. And if you are chipping a pyrite, you'll knock off a piece of iron, and it, once it hits oxygen, it, it oxidizes and, and burns bright enough to spark a fire. Uh, and that probably had happened before, but, but I think she was probably the first person to realize why it happened. And this insight was probably the greatest uh, geologic discovery in, in our evolutionary history.
1: And you, you say she, but you, you're just assigning a gender like you're assigning a name, right? You don't really know it was a woman.
2: Yeah, in many cases, I I try to profile these people because I think uh, it helps to uh, remember and envision a single person was responsible for for many of these things. And in some cases, I have a lot of evidence to suggest their gender or what they looked like or or how they acted. And in in other cases, I don't. In the case of fire, this happened so long ago, there really isn't any reason to suspect one gender or the other. So I I basically just assigned one.
1: But you said something a moment ago, that I want to go back to, and that is we grew a foot because what? what?
2: So uh, fire is, it's basically like chewing our food outside of the body. It, it breaks it down so that our intestines can extract far more uh, nutrients from, the, from food. And, and so uh, before fire, we had uh, intestines, that look, guts that looked a lot more like a, a chimpanzee's. They were more than twice as long as they are now. Because you have to uh, really, the, the intestines have to really process a, a raw piece of food. But once we had cooking, we no longer needed that extra intestines and that energy, that excess calories and energy went toward uh, making us taller, for one, which uh, enabled us to uh, have a longer stride and we were better runners. Uh, we uh, lost our fur. Because fire was a source of warmth, and we no longer needed to stay warm at night, and uh, even the size of our brains grew brains are calorically gluttonous, they require a lot of energy and, and, and when we had cooked meals we we had that extra the extra calories
1: isn't that interesting that, that that fire would just just that just cooking food would change fundamentally who we are in many ways
2: it's it's really probably the greatest shift in in our evolutionary history and and I don't think we realize how much we depend on it. We really couldn't exist without fire. You um we could not nobody has ever been found to have been able to survive in the wild on wild foods, on wild uncooked foods for more than a few months. It's uh we just we can't extract enough energy out of a raw meal.
1: I'd love to hear a little bit about who invented the wheel because I would I would have loved to have been there <laughs> just to see everybody's uh, uh you know mouth open like oh wow. This is so much easier.
2: The first full-size wheel and axle, uh, is, is, a lot of call, scholars call it the greatest mechanical insight in, in human history. Uh, but it was actually a really, uh, it may have existed, the, the idea may have existed beforehand in small rolling toys, but the first person to really uh, revolutionize uh, farming and travel was the person who scaled it up into a full-size wagon. And, and we can see this happened at one point in one time. Uh, and then it spread virally throughout the, throughout the continent, throughout Middle East and Europe. And, uh, and he, he was sort of a, a, a craftsmanship genius because these first wagons were 500 pounds, and so they required metal tools to make the fitting between the axle and the wheel perfect. And, and uh, so it really was a piece of engineering and, and crafting genius.
1: How quickly, though, I wonder, did, did somebody say, well, well, it not only works here, but it'll work on all kinds of things?
2: Yeah, so at first the wheel, these wagons were, were uh, pretty funky. They were, they were really heavy. Uh, the wheels had to be solid, uh, so they were almost like uh, yeah, a few hundred pounds. And they required oxen, uh, sort of uh, castrated male cattle, to pull them. These were not uh, wheelbarrows or, or mountain bikes. They, and it took nearly um, a thousand years before they even uh, started inventing spokes, which meant the wheel could be significantly lighter and you could have things like chariots. So the, the first wagons, though they were they were revolutionary and allowed uh, single family farms, for example, because one person could carry a lot of weight. They weren't; uh, these people weren't racing all over the place. They were; they were still really heavy.
1: But people weren't saying, "Hey, we and we can use this on this thing, and we can use a wheel over here, and we could use a wheel over there." Uh, that didn't happen right away.
2: The wheel is like some other inventions; it's taken. Um, as time has progressed, we we sort of taken a long time to realize how great it really is. It, uh, <laughs> when I grew up, uh, we didn't have wheeled luggage, and then uh, someone realized that if you put wheels on luggage, you can uh, get around the airport a little bit easier. So it's really, and that's kind of been the, the trajectory of of uh, the wheel and, and many other inventions. It's sort of a uh, the invention is a great moment, but then there's many other uh, subsequent uh, revolutions that occur.
1: Yeah, we we talked about that one before because. It does seem that wheeled luggage came way too late that somebody should have somebody should have figured that out because like you, I, you know, I remember the days before wheeled luggage, and people would drag have to lift and how come nobody figured that out until i what was it like the eighties seventies eighties right
2: yeah recently i I think I read some i I think it had to do a lot with airplane travel because uh wheeled luggage doesn't work very nearly as well as on the on a sidewalk that has cracks and bumps. Uh, so was, I think it really uh, came into its own when, when the floors were the uh, linoleum-like, very smooth surfaces, which, which sort of um, is another, thar- uh, another uh, key element of many of these inventions, is that it's sometimes you can look silly for not having an invention, these ancient people, but then you realize that there were other key elements that they were missing that, that would have, without them, it sort of renders the, uh, the invention itself useless.
1: So when you when you describe that first wheel, you know, I I I keep thinking of the wheels on Fred Flintstone's car. Is is that basically what they were?
2: Well, they were made of wood.
1: Oh, they, um, yeah, not Fred. They were
2: not not stone, but they were they were still really heavy and difficult. Uh it turns out you can't uh, my first instinct, and I, and I assume other people's, would be to just sort of cut a log salami style, and then they, and you got your wheel. But it turns out that doesn't work because uh, the grain of wood runs in the wrong direction. I'm told so it, the wheel will actually crack almost immediately under the weight. So you actually have to take vertical cuts from uh, a log and then dowel them together, and then shave them into a round circle, of course, with a, with a middle hole for the axle. So even with just that first part of the wagon, you can see how, how difficult uh, a manufacturing process it actually was.
1: So since it's the title of your book, who did eat the first oyster? Because when you look at an oyster and you think of all the things you could possibly eat and look at that and go, hmm, that looks tasty, uh, who, who did that?
2: The question of who ate the first oyster is actually—it sounds like a joke—but it's actually—it uh, actually has a surprisingly, surprisingly, it has an answer because it's archaeologists recently just found the oldest eaten oysters. They're around uh, 164,000 years old, and found them at the bottom of South Africa. And it was not only a, a bold uh, woman who made this discovery. I, I call her Oyster Gal. She was uh, a scientist as well because. She didn't live along the coast. She had to travel to the ocean, and that, and that brings up, up the problem of the tides. You can only gather oysters oysters around uh, 10% of the time when the tide is super low. So she, she wouldn't have been able to gather them uh, efficiently until she understood how to predict the tides, which meant she was able to piece together that a full or new moon coincides with a uh, super low tide. So she was not only a, a bold eater, she was a, uh, she was a bit of an astronomist as well.
1: We're talking about great firsts in history, and we're talking with Cody Cassidy, who is author of the book, Who Ate the First Oyster? Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just, you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief, why not try it? Claritin D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill – that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin-D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount. So you can live clarit and clear, use as directed.
0: So,
1: Cody, this is interesting. You somehow traced back who is the first person whose name we know.
2: The first person whose name we know uh, lived in Mesopotamia almost 5,000 years ago. He was a, and he wasn't a a king or a a prince or a warlord. He was actually uh, an accountant. He was an accountant for a brewery, and his name was uh, Kushim. And we see on the first pieces of writing are actually just Receipts. So this is a a receipt that we found that is uh, proving that he this Kushim had purchased a, a measure of barley. We actually know a few details about him too. He wasn't a very good accountant because there are a few examples of his on his tablets of him making some pretty egregious errors. Uh, so so even though he was a uh, the accountant in charge of a, a fairly large uh, brewery at the time, he was uh, uh, it's a mystery how he got his job. It was maybe some nepotism or something was involved.
1: So his legacy is that he sucked at what he did, and
2: yeah, it's uh, yeah, and that's uh, but he's remembered at least he, he's, his name is remembered.
1: <laughs> so where did the idea of soap come from?
2: Uh, soap is occurs uh, was probably made in deep in human history by by accident because you can make it with simply combining a, a fat and the ash from a fire, and will help. So if someone uh, cleaned their greasy plate with ash, you'll, you'll create a little bit of soap and, uh accidentally. But it wasn't actually made intentionally until around uh, 4,500 years ago by, by uh, uh, She was a textile factory worker. I've called, I've named her uh, Nini Sina after a uh, the Sumerian goddess of medicine, and she was a. She was just simply making something that made it a little bit easier to process wool. She was working in a factory that processed a lot of wool, and, and soap helps remove the fat off of wool so you can spin it. It had nothing to do with washing herself or her hands, and so even though soap has saved more lives than penicillin, it's one of the greatest medical products we've ever come up with, she probably received no acclaim in, in her time. And, uh, it's actually it's sort of been a, a long 4,500-year process of us understanding how great soap is at at saving lives.
1: Wait, wait. Soap has saved more lives than penicillin. Explain.
2: It allows water to coexist with oil. Uh, So it helps remove, if your hands are greasy and you use soap, you can remove the oil. And this is uh, beneficial because it removes any bacteria uh, or viruses that might be in the oil. This is why it's uh, much better to use soap when washing your hands than it is to use just water. And soap also destroys viruses. Uh, It... um, it rips them apart, basically it rips apart viruses and bacteria. So, soap makes living in in dense cities almost possible because otherwise we would be passing around to so many viruses and pathogens that uh, it would be it would be too dangerous.
1: Kind of like we're doing now. Exactly, um, <laughs> you're right. <laughs>
2: um,
1: the first beer. Let's talk about the first who drank the first beer because in order to drink the first beer, somebody would have had to have made the first beer. So. I'm sure that's an interesting story.
2: Yeah, the first beer was made, I call her Osiris. She lived around 16,000 years ago in the Middle East. This is about when uh, hunter-gatherers first began gathering wheat and rye. And she would uh, not gather it it too often because it's uh, rare and difficult, but when she did, she probably made a watery uh, granola or a gruel. And she was probably a forgetful person because if you just leave out uh, gruel for a day in the sun it'll ferment and turn into a, a slightly alcoholic beer. Uh, so she might not have been the first person to do that, but she may have been the first person with the, the courage to try this fermented mistake, and she would have uh, understood and recognized the taste of alcohol and and uh, presumably wanted more and This is why uh, archaeologists are, are starting to think that people actually began gathering wheat intensively. Not because they were interested in bread, but, but because actually they, were, they wanted beer.
1: And when she invented, or when she created the first beer, had there been other alcoholic beverages before that, or was this also the beginning of drinking?
2: No, alcohol uh, occurs naturally, and, and we, we think that we first developed a taste for it uh, long before we were even Homo sapiens, probably when... Uh, we began eating uh, fruit off the ground when it had fermented, and so this sort of explains our preference for uh, for the taste and smell of it. So fermented fruits can't be uh, stored or accessed easily, and so they, they think that, which is not the case with cereals, which can be harvested in mass and, uh, and stored, so they think this, and, and then they have the, the other benefit of actually being a, a food. So they think the discovery of beer was actually a
1: really important uh, shift in the lifestyle of, of humans. Do you have any sense as to what the recipe was? Would we recognize what she made as beer today?
2: My local brewery actually made a, a similar a similar beer to this once as a, as a part of a celebration, these ancient recipes for beer. They tell me it, it would have tasted, there's actually a brand he compared it to called a, a Berliner Weiss, which is a beer made without hops. It's sort of uh, tangy, and it would have been low alcohol without very much carbon dioxide. Uh, and it would have also had a lot of uh, sort of wheat chaff on the top. These old beers were drank with straws. So I don't think we, we would enjoy it, but we would certainly recognize that it, that it had alcohol in it.
1: I wanted to ask, as you look back on all of these things, in the in these very early days, these thousands and thousands of years ago, when people are discovering the wheel and fire and all that, was there any kind of I don't know how to add, you know how today we're always kind of looking for a better mousetrap. We just we're always looking to improve everything. Were people looking, or were these all kind of accidents? And and people weren't always striving to build a better mousetrap.
2: I think most of our Inventions, and, and certainly the some of the most unique ones were were probably made by accident. I think that is somewhat true today, but was even more true uh, back then. I think one of the ones that I was looking into, and uh, and, I, and I think this is certainly the case for, was the, the first bow and arrow. Which was these are really ancient. They were the first arrowheads were found almost sixty, uh, a little more than sixty thousand years ago. But a bow and arrow is a really sophisticated weapon, and it's a little bit... And it doesn't have... It's not a replicant of anything in nature, which um, is, is... So like most unique inventions, I think we arrived upon it by complete accident. I think um, the best evidence is these uh, people were playing with sticks and strings and sort of played with the, the flexion and this... You know, tied them together and, and discovered you could launch little sticks. But even then, that isn't a, a killing machine. It's, it's a toy. And I think this is actually... Pretty common in history that weapons began as toys. We see it with boomerangs and, and gunpowder and rockets. So I think the first inventor of the bow and arrow was was, was a complete accident, and, and may have been the first user may have been a child.
1: And lastly, who invented clothes? Seems like a great idea.
2: Remarkably, we can actually answer this question uh, as well because uh, even though clothing degrades quickly, body lice live on clothing, and geneticists have looked at these body lice. And they've determined that they first began to live on uh, clothes around just over 100,000 years ago. So we we actually know when this person lived, in, and I've I've called him Ralph. We think he was actually not interested in uh, clothing for its warmth. He was more interested in in showing off because uh, many many uh, people have lived in colder climates than he lived uh, and not used clothing for fire, for warmth. They used fire, such in T- Tasmania and South America. So, uh, but it is a universal uh, human activity to show off, so to decorate one's body. So uh, I called him Ralph after the designer Ralph Lauren because I think, uh, in his case, in the case of clothing, fashion uh, may have predated function.
1: Was there a time prior to that, that that people just walked around naked all the time?
2: Presumably because we lost our fur uh, long with the invention uh, of controlled fire. Which was uh, more than a million years before these uh, people first began wearing uh, clothing. So, which is a remarkably long time. But with fire, we had, uh, which is the reason we lost fur to begin with, is uh, we had a source of warmth, and it seems like we made do with that. And then after we moved into Homo sapiens uh, moved into Europe, which was during the ice age, we certainly needed clothing for warmth. Uh, But that wasn't until uh, more like uh, 70,000 years ago.
1: Well, it's quite a task you took on, and it's really interesting to hear the stories. Cody Cassidy has been my guest. He is author of the book, Who Ate the First Oyster? The Extraordinary People Behind the Greatest Firsts in History. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Cody. Thank you so much. something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. With the economy starting to open up, people who need a job are starting to look again. And if it's been a while since you last went job hunting, I've got some excellent and encouraging advice from Steve Dalton. Steve is founder and CEO of Contact to Colleague a corporate training firm, and he's author of the book, The Two-Hour Job Search. Hi, Steve. Welcome to Something You Should Know. It's a pleasure to be here. So I would suspect a lot of people believe that the best and easiest way to find a job is to look at the online job postings and respond to the ones you like. And sooner or later, hopefully sooner, you get a job offer
0: but everybody has that same idea. So any job posting is inundated by interest from qualified and unqualified candidates alike. So if I'm a hiring manager, the logical thing to do would be to look for people who've done this exact job before, but somewhere else, or to just ask my colleagues who they know and they like. And whenever that first option's available, they'll take it. But barring that, their next option will be, give me someone that is vouched for by someone I trust. And that's where networking becomes so critical.
1: And that's always been the way that most people get their jobs, right? It's, it's because you know somebody who knows somebody or you know somebody that, that it's more than just a resume in the mail or a posting online or it's, it's always been that way. And it probably will for some time to come, I would
0: imagine. Uh, I think what's changed in the last 10 years is the sense of false hope that online job postings provide that that is no longer the case, when in in reality, I think it's only magnified the need to build that human connection. The funny thing is, is nobody's really trained to do that. They think of having a network and knowing the right people as a passive activity. It's just something that happens to you. You know the right people or you don't. For me, I'm very passionate about empowering people to build that network for themselves, especially for those people to whom such activities do not come intuitively. And
1: it seems too that and I can speak for myself, but I've also talked to other people and I've also heard some research that the idea of building the network, of going to functions, of meeting people, people would rather have their teeth pulled than do that. They hate the whole process or at least the prospect of going through that process of building a network.
0: Rightly, they should. I wish that piece of advice that is so ubiquitous That concept of sell yourself, I wish it would die in a fire, frankly. It causes so much pain. And it really upsets me when I hear very well regarded career coaches give that advice to people because we live in sort of a post sales uh, world right now where authenticity is key. If we sense a sales pitch, our guards go up. But success in the modern job search means having the ability to bring people's guards down on demand. So it's not just about having a, a big network that you keep warm at all times, it's about identifying what you want, and building a relevant network as needed, just in time.
1: I would assume that that would take too long. If I need a job now, I don't need to go out and build my network. That could take years, and and I need a job now.
0: I don't think it has to take years. I think that's the perception. Again, when you haven't been trained for something, how are you going to be good, for it? Uh, good at it? It's like expecting a, a, a grade schooler to be excellent at the violin the first time they pick it up. This is a skill that is... Critical to your success in your in your career, which is shocking because it's so rarely taught anywhere with any sort of degree of formality. I think what you'll find is that what a, a modern job see, seeker might, who's very desperate, might spend ten hours today uh, applying for online job postings, and the response rate is so close to zero; it's almost negligible. But if, none of the, if they don't get a response from any of that 10 hours of effort, they're back where they started the next day. They're no closer to, it, to a, a job. However, if they spend that 10 hours in, uh, reaching out to people in careers they want to enter, asking for the gift of their time, and letting them speak about why they're so good at their jobs, they will have a lasting benefit from that 10 hours. They will develop additional eyes and ears that are looking on their behalf, and it will all be authentic and result in learning along the way which is the exact opposite of the experience of blindly applying online for the next postings that you see.
1: But it's so attractive to do that because you think, here's a job. I need one. I can do the kind of what they're asking for in this job. What a great way to connect. Uh, uh, You know, if I do it enough times, I'm bound to get a job.
0: I equate it to seeing the job of your dreams 10 feet away. It's just out of reach. But what you don't realize until you try to approach it is that you're separated from it by a foot wide wall of plexiglass that's as high and as wide as the eye can see. You can't go over it. You can't dig under it. And what people today are doing is they're hurling themselves into that plexiglass wall over and over and over, battering themselves in the process. And in reality, the only way to get to that job that's behind that wall is to start hiking around the wall, to find that end. What's ironic about that is you initially get further away from that job, that goal, when you start this process. Uh, you feel like you're missing out because you're no longer applying at the same rate. You're reaching out to people and it feels like it'll take a long time. But once you see the edge of the wall, everything else becomes clear and it's just a matter of time. It's a much healthier way to live. But I get it. It, it is the candy hide. The only positive reinforcement job seekers get in their search is when an online job posting says, congratulations, your application has been successfully submitted." or when their family members say, we know you're doing your best, honey. They don't correlate with success. The way that you get affirmation from your support network is you quantify your efforts in number of resumes dropped and number of hours spent. But neither of those things correlate with success in the modern job search. The amount of informational meetings you do does correlate with success in the job search.
1: So take me through your process, and obviously it took a whole book to explain it, but but help me get a better feel for what you're recommending people do. If we're not going to do that, we still got to do something. So what's your way?
0: Yeah, there has to be an alternative, right? I think what drove me to write a book is that every piece of intellectual capital on the subject I'd ever seen was presented as tips. Here's 50 tips, go figure it out for yourself. But when you buy a cookbook, you don't want lists of ingredients, you want recipes, because recipes are replicable. I'm a former chemical engineer by trade, so I very much think in terms of recipes. Uh, Also, interacting with strangers is not intuitive to me, so I had to learn a lot of these behaviors because nothing came natural. So my process, in a nutshell, before we spend dozens of hours, it falls into three steps. First, you're going to prioritize the world of all possible targets into a logical subset. Second, you're gonna reach out to people at those targets. And third, you're going to recruit the advocacy of those people. Now, the prioritization piece is the one people most often overlook. Before we spend hours and hours networking and and getting people to open up about why they're so good at their job, we need to spend just one hour doing a, a little bit of brainstorming to make sure that the companies we spend hours networking with are actually the right ones first.
1: So let's use an example, because when you say things like prioritization and subsets and those kind of terms, I, I, I get a little lost, but I think maybe a, a really clear example would help here.
0: Sure. So in terms of prioritizing contacts, the, the concept that I teach is something called the lamp list. It takes the universe of all possible employers and puts them into a logical order of attack. Now, I equate this to the TV show, The Bachelor. Uh, on The Bachelor, it's From a game theory perspective, the show fascinates me because if you're The Bachelor on a show called The Bachelor, you're going to win. But if you're one of 25 contestants, you're at a distinct disadvantage already. Right out of the gate, you only have 4% odds of success. What The Lamp List does is it turns you into The Bachelor in your own job search. So the way that we do that is we brainstorm 40 employers in about 40 minutes
1: so how do, you, how do you do that, brainstorm 40 employers? I mean, I would have a hard time coming up with that many, at least in my line of work. I would have a hard time brainstorming 40. So how do you do that?
0: So essentially, we would try to identify different employers we'd work for using a few different approaches so that we get a different set of results each time. With the end result being that we've pushed ourselves beyond the obvious handful of employers that first occurred to us. So if I were to say, think of a, a soda brand, everybody would immediately think of Coke and Pepsi. But when you push people to brainstorm beyond the obvious ones, that's where you start uncovering the less obvious but more promising opportunities in a market like this, the Jones sodas of the world. Um, my goal is to get everybody to push past the obvious employers because those are the same ones that everybody else is targeting too to get to things that are a little bit more uni- unique. Interestingly, the more unique companies that you network with, the more success you'll have at the larger, more mainstream companies, because you'll have shown a more genuine interest in that particular industry sector or space.
1: Okay. So let's say I got my 40 employers. It seems a bit daunting to come up with 40, but
0: 40 it is. So the idea is, Without a lamp list, what tends to happen is people just pick the first five companies that come to mind, and they make that the entirety of their networking strategy, regardless of whether the data suggests that those would be good targets for them or not. So what we do by brainstorming forty is we ensure that the five that we end up focusing our networking efforts on are the five that give us some the best reasons to believe we're going to get traction quickly, so find that job faster. So basically, we're looking for the presence of existing advocates. We're looking for our own personal motivation and pain tolerance, frankly, for approaching companies, knowing that we'll get ignored a bunch of times before we find a friend. That will give us a top five that will take into the second step of the process for outreach. So this process, I think a lot of people think when you approach companies, you got to sell yourself. I strongly disagree with this. When you approach a total stranger to ask them if they're willing to talk to you about why they're so good at their job they don't know you yet. The one way to, the quickest way to turn them off is to start talking about yourself. Instead, I want to employ the opposite approach. Don't talk about yourself at all. Talk about this person's experience and why you'd like to hear more about it. This seems counterintuitive because how will they know I want a job if I don't tell them I'm looking for a job? Uh, If I'm asking for their insight and advice instead of a job, trust me, they know you're looking for a job. Nobody sends meeting requests for informational meetings for fun. Uh, at least I hope not, because that's that's pretty messed up. What will entice them to talk to you is your genuine interest in what they have to say. Basically, some research showed that if you ask for favors, you're just as successful as if you offer a, a compelling amount of money uh, to get people to cooperate with you. So asking for a favor is much cheaper and much easier, and it's very authentic as well.
1: What does that mean so, to ask for... Like, What would you possibly ask somebody... What kind of favor would that be?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um, Can you tell me about your experience in product management or as a traveling nurse, for example? That's really all the email boils down to. I teach something called the six-point email, and there's six very simple elements to it. Basically, keep it short. Keep it authentic. Ask for insight and advice rather than job leads. Make sure you ask a question, and make sure that at least 50% of the word counts about them rather than you that's a common mistake people will make. They may ask for the gift of uh, a contact's time, but then spend 80% of that email talking about themselves and why that they should be interested to be talking to the job seeker. Uh, So it's really about writing a selfless email that's short and to the point and recognizing that only 20% of people are going to respond to it. The 20% that respond, I call them, I think there are three types of people you encounter in the job search. There are curmudgeons who will never respond under any circumstances. There are obligates who will respond, but don't really want to. They're responding out of a sense of obligation. And there are boosters. Boosters are people who just want to pay it forward, the help they've received in the past. They're just good-hearted people, but I would put them at only about 20% of the population. So you've got to kiss a lot of frogs to find your princes in this process.
1: And so that email would look like what? Like, Give me, a for instance, Dear Bob Smith.
0: Dear Bob, uh, do you have some time to talk to me about your experience as a product manager? your insights would be greatly appreciated because I'm trying to learn more about product management in the North Carolina tech space. It would be something like that.
1: Something very quick. Very short. It almost seems, uh, because I'm just gut reacting to your email that you just mentioned, that it's almost too short. Like there's no reason for it. Like This is coming out of the blue from somebody I don't know who's asking me one question. There's no context to this. It's easy for me to dismiss this guy.
0: I think it would be easy for people who are not inclined to help strangers with their job search to ignore this email. And this email is not about getting the most responses possible. It's about getting the most responses from boosters as possible. So the less reason you give them to compel their cooperation, the more likely they are to be the genuinely helpful kind of contact you need.
1: And is the goal to get a phone call, an in-person meeting? What, what's When you say, can, can I have some of your time, uh, how?
0: Great question. Most often it will be done by phone. Uh, strangers aren't generally comfortable meeting strangers in person. And so it, if you are open or you're local, offer the option. Once they respond and say they're interested in chatting, you can say you're happy to meet by phone or in person over coffee. Uh, and they'll opt into whichever approach they prefer. Okay. But the goal is generally going to be a real-time conversation, by one means or another.
1: Okay. And next, and what's the next step? I imagine having the conversation.
0: Yeah. Now we're at the conversation. Now this is this is where things get tricky because everybody knows how to prepare for job interviews, but how do you prepare for an informational meeting? Because you have to manage the agenda this time instead of the the interviewer. Uh, so I teach my job seekers something called the Tiara method. It's a rigorous questioning algorithm. That really focuses the job seeker on active listening rather than sales. So, the way that we accomplish that is we use the first half of the conversation to portray this contact as an expert in their field, which they are especially relevant to you, relative to you. And we use the second half to shift the frame of our questions to portray them as a met- potential mentor. So the way that we do this is by asking questions that are both fun and flattering to answer. So we're not gonna ask them what the corporate culture is like at their firm, that's tedious, it results in a laundry list of information you could have gotten off the internet. We're gonna ask questions like, what's your favorite part of the corporate culture? That only, that's fun, that's uh, uh, superlative, there's only one answer and that inter- the person you're interviewing can't be wrong. It's their own opinion, you could ask 10 people and get 10 different opinions. So TIARA itself stands for trends, insight, advice resources and assignments assignments is another word for projects but using that algorithm starting off with some some small talk to promote likability asking trend and insight questions that basically ask the person why they're so smart at their job and then shifting them towards a more uh, mentorship style style of question uh, where you ask them what they would do if they were in your position and and what resources you should investigate next That's how you maximize the chance that you turn this conversation into what you're really looking for, which is a referral. Referrals are the currency of the modern job search. Brown, Cetron, and Topa did this fascinating study at the New York Fed, where they found that for every one person who was hired through an online job posting, 12 were hired through internal referrals.
1: You said a moment ago to uh, ask people why they're so smart at their job. How how, how does that question... How do you word that question? Because it seems... uh, you wouldn't ask it that way, would you?
0: Absolutely not. No, that's uh, I'm, I'm being flipped for shorthand purposes. So trend questions, that's where I would start. These are macro questions. A good trend question would be, uh, what trend is most impacting your business right now? Ask 10 people, get 10 different answers, all of which are correct, regardless of their level within the organization. Or you could ask it a slightly different way. How do you predict business will be most different five years from now? So we're basically asking for them for their take on their market. Insight questions, or the second category, they get a little more personal. So um, what's been your best professional decision so far and why, Uh, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in my position? So they get a little bit more intimate, but then we get to advice and that's where we start shifting the frame from portraying them as an expert to a mentor. So uh, if you were me, what would you be doing right now to best prepare for a career in this field would be an advice question. And the resources question is where we give this contact a chance to share a referral with us without the awkward face-losing opportunity of putting them on the spot and asking directly who you should speak to next. So the resources question is this. What resources do you recommend I look into next? By asking for what resources we should look into next, you're giving people who are open with their network a chance to give you a name, but you're also saving face in case they're not comfortable doing that. If they're not comfortable giving you a name, they'll say, what sort of resources are you looking for? At which point you would say, are there any conferences you make sure you attend each year to uh, stay up to date? What's the most important 10 minutes of research you do on your space uh, in a given week to stay current on your field? So there's ways to pivot away from that, which allows us to ask for a referral directly after the informational meeting itself, usually a week after.
1: And then what? Or, Or do you just leave it kind of vague like that?
0: So after that, you send a thank you note within 24 hours. And that to me closes the transaction. You asked for the gift of their time. The thank you note closes that transaction. However, you set yourself a reminder to follow up a week later. My recommendation is ending the informational with a a phrase like this. Wow, you've given me a lot to think about. I'm gonna take the weekend to reflect. Is it okay if I reach back out to you with any additional questions? To which they'll probably say yes. If they do, you set yourself a reminder for one week later, you send a thank you note that night. When that reminder goes off in your calendar, Then you follow up with an email like this. Thank you so much for your time last week. Upon further reflection, this is definitely something I'd like to pursue further. How would you go about doing that if you were me? For example, can you recommend someone I should speak to next? This is your best chance, best opportunity to to request a referral explicitly. It's over email, so it's less threatening. They've had a week to realize they kind of liked you. You You didn't try to upsell them or put them into an awkward situation. So if you don't get a referral here, you're probably not going to get a referral. But allowing a little bit of time to pass, make sure that they see that your interest in their expertise was sincere.
1: Okay. Something in me says you still got to ask.
0: You got to ask for the job. Because the type of contact we're working with are boosters. We don't really have to worry too much about that. Generally, they're going to offer more than you're willing to ask for. So no booster I've ever met has said, oh, I really, I met this job seeker who is great, but because they never asked me for a job explicitly, I just didn't mention that we had an opening. That's literally something that never happens. So if you get people to like you and interested is interesting, if you express a genuine interest in others, they will take an interest in you. And then it's just a very organic conversation from there. The idea is that you can't guarantee success through any one single referral. So we just keep building our bench of referrals at multiple organizations and different sectors that we'd be open to working in. And over time, I equate it to fishing for lobster rather than fishing for fish. When you fish for fish, you put bait on a hook, you throw the hook in the water, and fish, fish swim up and you have dinner, or they don't, and you're right back where you started tomorrow. But when you fish for lobster, you buy cages. They, lobsters don't swim up to hooks. So you buy cages that you bait and you leave them in the water for a little while. Then you check them regularly to see if you caught anything. Now, you never know with any certainty that any individual cage will ever catch you a lobster, but you do know with certainty that the more cages you have in the water, the better your odds are of catching a lobster eventually. And that's the right mindset taken at the job search. It's not about going immediately towards the goal. It's about acquiring cages systematically. Each booster that you find is an additional set of eyes and ears job searching on your behalf, even when you're sleeping. And what's your
1: sense as to how many lobster cages you've got to put out there? I mean, if it's 10, that's not so bad. And 20, if it's uh, 200, now you're asking a lot.
0: It's a great question. So when using the LAMP list, everybody I've had who's followed it as designed, who's followed the recipe exactly, while I have people brainstorm 40 employers, pretty much everybody's done by the time they get down to number 10 on their list. Now, the catch here is you don't move on to company, you start with companies one through five and you don't move to company six until you find a booster at companies one through five. But everybody's done by number 10. I've only had two people reach number 15 and then they landed it by number 15 and they were more experienced professionals for whom the job search is going to take longer just because there are fewer positions at that level and pay grade to be targeting.
1: Well, there's a lot of detail there, and listeners may want to go back and listen for the specific steps and techniques. But but I like this idea of rather than just applying for jobs to build that, that network of people from these informational meetings, seems like it has a really good shot. My guest has been Steve Dalton, and the name of his book is The Two-Hour Job Search. You'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, Steve.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
1: You can tell how sincere someone is by watching their hands. According to a blog from Psychology Today, people tend to gesture with their dominant hand when they feel positive or passionate about something. When we aren't so sure or we don't like something, that dominant hand tends to quiet down a lot. It's because we associate things we like or feel strongly about with the side of the body we use the most. And that is something you should know. The next time the topic of podcasts comes up in conversation, comes up a lot in my conversations, maybe it comes up in yours, do recommend this one, would you please? Tell them to listen to Something You Should Know. I'd appreciate it. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know